It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And today we're reading uh, chapter 64 through 70, yeah. hopefully. I think we'll get to all of them. Yeah, no, I think we will um, pretty easily. Uh, this is uh, another one of those selections of like a bunch of chapters about a bunch of different stuff, but they're all kind of focused. Yeah, I think there. I think there's a thematic through line here. It's mostly sharks, but like they're... Well, and it's mostly about like <laughs> what happens after you've killed a whale. Yes, since Stubb did just kill a whale. So Stubb's going to be the main character for a little while, and I'm very sorry to everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, we already kind of know that uh, all the mates, Stubb maybe especially, are, are kind of jerks, but uh, this is really a chapter that underlines how much Stubb loves to, like, uh, you know... Um, Boss people around? Yeah, abuse his petty authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely... So it's, uh, you know, in chapter 64, Stubb's Supper. Stubb is really, uh, he's living high on the hog because he's just killed a whale and he's in good spirits and the other mates are basically letting him, uh, you know, crow about it and, and run around being, um, be like taking charge of everything because it's his whale. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, the the first thing that happens in this chapter is that um, three boats together row the dead whale back to the Pequod, which is like this enormous effort. Um, it's because very heavy. <laughs> it's a large whale. Whales are big. Yes. Whales are very big. That is one thing that we are making very clear of. Yes. Um, and they, uh, they fasten the whale to the Pequod, um, the head at the bow and the flukes at the stern. Um, um, other way around, I think. Isn't it? Uh, the, um, sorry, I, I'm now looking for this, because I, um, tail to the bows and the head to the stern. Oh, wow, yeah, I just misread that, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, no, um, no, it's, it's in, I remembered because it's inverted. The whale isn't going in the same direction as the boat. Yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, I it's just like, misread that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's heavily chained on, and we get a little bit of detail about how to properly attach the, um ship to the whale in a footnote because the um the part you want to tie it to because it's like thin is the tail just b below the flukes but that part of the whale is the densest so it sinks into the water so what you have to do is you take a line and it's got a weight in the middle and a wooden bob on the far end so you drop it in the water and i think how i understand this is basically the weight will carry the bob underwater and you lower the line far enough and then when you raise it again the bob can get under will float up under the other side of the whale if you do it right and then you can grab that bob pull the uh rope up so that the weight is like just directly under the fluke and tie it off there and that way you can actually successfully grab onto the whale that when its tail has like slipped more than six feet underwater so there's not really an easy way to hook a line under it you're certainly not going to have someone like jump in the water and swim around 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think at any point during this, uh, during a successful whaling voyage where nothing has gone wrong, should anyone ever be swimming in the water. Yeah, that seems like that's probably how this is supposed to work. Um, I think it's kind of funny that uh, Israel decides to give us this footnote, footnote that you just explicated about how they, uh, how they fasten the tail to the ship. Uh, and, you know, I get that this is something that maybe requires a little explanation because, as you said, it's dense, it's sinking in the water. But um, uh, we're later to hear a lot about how huge and, like, difficult to maneuver the head of the whale is. And that is true. No information on how they manage to, like, get a line or a chain around that. See, I don't think they do. I think they just stick a hook in it. I mean, that also sounds plausible, but, like... They, they don't specify, it's true. I, I, th- I guess what I'm saying is that I think Ishmael is, uh... You know what it probably is? Is that this... The, the, the tail hold has this, like, fancy little maneuver with the... Yeah. With the, the um... The line and the weight and the bob. Exactly. Uh, and Ishmael wanted to explain that, whereas whatever it is they do at the head, I guess, is less involved and less interesting. Yeah, entirely possible. It... You know, it's also the case that the head is going to float better. Sure, it's possible that might all that's part of it, as opposed to the tail sinking down. Um, To be clear, I'm not necessarily asking for another head-based footnote. I just think it's funny that he singles this out. You know, Um, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so uh, one you know, item of note is that um, uh, Ahab like gives the order to make the whale secure in the you know normal. Wailing way. Um, But he doesn't, uh, unlike how he was in the chase, where he was caught up in it in the way that you normally would be and, like, seemed fully uh, uh, motivated. Um, At this point, Ahab is kind of, like, out of sorts. Um, As though, I mean, Ishmael's uh, idea for why this is is maybe that, like, seeing the actual dead whale kind of reminds him, like, okay, this is not Moby Dick, and killing this whale has not actually furthered my goal at all yeah i uh ishmael phrases it as some vague dissatisfaction or impatience or despair seemed working in him so ahab is being moody and not really taking charge of the uh well the butchering process to be quite honest uh the you know handling of the whale yeah <sighs> there's also a very nice just use of words which is describing the um the sort of whale tugging uh endeavor has a number of like little details that ishmael's very clearly happy about you know um 180 thumbs and fingers slowly toiled after hour upon hour upon that inert sluggish corpse in the sea or you know but this grand argosy we towed heavily forged along as if laden with pig lead in bulk just he's really trying to communicate how unpleasant the bit where you pull the whale back is yeah um so that's, uh, you know, the, the basic business of getting the whale. Uh, now the, like, actual kind of co- main content of this chapter, as, as we mentioned before, this is Stubb. Uh, and Stubb's Supper, that being yes. the chapter. So, um, uh, so Starbuck basically uh, 
retires, presumably, I, I don't know, to below decks or something, and like let's let Stubb have command of the ship. Well, I, I think the way it's phrased, it's if Moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least as far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. And uh, such an unwanted bustle was he in that the staid Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him for the time the sole management of affairs. So I picture Starbuck, like, smoking somewhere on deck. Starbuck okay. is not... Because the thing is, Starbuck's, you know, he's a good work ethic Protestant. He he gets stuff so done. It, I don't... it is, technically speaking, Starbuck's job to oversee this stuff at this point, so he shouldn't be, like, absent. But yeah. but he's letting Stubb manage. Yeah, exactly. He's, 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 and normally Stubb would be one of the managers. He's one of the mates. But Stubb clearly wants to run everything, and Starbuck, uh, I think Starbuck shows up um, wielding one of the, uh, one of the whale spades later. Um. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, a uh, a little bit of, of like, time. A little, these chapters don't go in perfect chronological order because the scene that we're about to talk about in this chapter, Stubb's Supper, has to happen, I assume, after they've finished, uh, at least after they've finished. Um, I think these are in chronological order because they, they tie the whale. They decide that there aren't enough sharks that they need to... Um, like dress the whale during the night and then the next day they get on with the uh, whale spades and things so is is the i thought there was some sort of suggestion that the beheading had to happen right away oh i the beheading definitely happens out of order but now we are out of order okay as so, out of order is ishmael okay so the, the beheading has to happen before the cutting in and the, it is narrated after the cutting in but both of those huh yeah. sorry i'm just i just give me a second i'm when he in the chapter where he talks about the beheading, he makes it very clear that that's the thing that has to happen first. Huh. I thought it happened after the cutting in, but before they cut it loose. Uh, well, let's get to that when we get to yeah, that. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Look, whales are complicated. Yeah, and and anyway, I was mistaken about uh all of that stuff happens tomorrow morning. Uh this evening, like the night that they caught the whale, they're not actually going to process it at all. They're just going to attach it to the ship. Yeah. Um, and uh, once they've... I, I do think once they've finished doing that... Yeah, they, they tie it up, and then uh, the last thing they do with the whale before, you know, leaving it just lying there alongside the ship is... Um, well, turns out Stubb really likes the taste of whale. Yeah, he, he orders Dagu to go cut him a whale steak from the side of it. Yeah, it's also, the, here's, here's a question. It says, Stubb was a high liver. He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale as a flavorish thing to his pala uh, palate. Yeah. Um, but my question is, is high liver defined in Power Moby Dick? No. Because I assumed that it could be like, oh, he lives high, but it could also be that he was someone with like a, you know, um... It could be a humor, a humors thing, like because the something's liver... going on with his liver. Exactly. Yeah, I I think that it. I think I mean powermobydick.com does not comment on this. Damn you, powermobydick.com. I I think that that suggests to me that it's not some sort of like medical terminology that it does just literally mean he likes to live it up. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was just hoping for more of Galen's humors. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't blame you, but uh, I don't think that's what's happening here. It is um, a very humorous book. Anyways. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and this is... Um, at this point, uh, Ishmael is at pains to point out to us that um, most 
uh, whalers do not eat whale. Um, yeah, it's um, his. I love his metaphor here. Yeah, his way of expressing it is very silly. Here be it known that though these wild fishermen do not, as a general thing, and according to the great military maxim, make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, at least before realizing the proceeds of the voyage, yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm whale designated by Stubb, comprising the tapering extremity of the body. Um... Uh, which is like the small is where it's cut from. I, I guess that's like the, I mean, basically the bit where the whale gets thinner before it gets to the tail. Anyways, yeah. by uh, by like that military metaphor, what, what he means is, you know, uh, something Napoleon was well known for actually was basically raiding the countryside and using the, uh, you know, the local enemy to furnish food, supplies, and equipment so that your army can remain in the field longer and without a supply line. Um and his suggestion is that unlike, you know, military praxis, at least I, that's how I read that, uh, whalers don't tend to use the whale for food, um, though they do eventually profit greatly from the whale when they get back to port with all the, uh, with all the oil, and that's what pays for their food. So it's, you know, he's at pains to note that the whale does defray the cost, it's just not immediate and, uh, you know, uh, carnivorous, I guess. Yeah, um... Uh, so, you know, uh, Stubb has his whale steak cut and cooked, and, uh, while Stubb is eating whale, uh, on top of the capstan, um, there are also sharks eating the whale. Yes, there's like a, um, I think a later, uh, chapter is, is it a later chapter that's called the shark banquet? I think it is. It's not called the shark banquet, it's called the funeral. Ah, yes. But yes, there is a later chapter that just really uh, talks a lot about the phenomenon of sharks swarming a dead whale next to a whaler. Oh, the shark massacres, the chapter I was thinking of, which is a different thing. Okay. But the important part is, there's just sharks show up, because there's a giant dead whale just there to be nibbled at. Yeah. Um, And in fact, we later learn that they... Uh, like we mentioned, they had to make the decision, okay, this is a lot of sharks, but it's not enough sharks that the whale will be seriously devalued by leaving it overnight. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like, if they were in more shark-infested waters, they might have to do the cutting in right away. I prefer to think of it as (sighs) shark-invested. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying... Look, these are some very shark-negative chapters. Um... (laughs) I am not necessarily of the opinion that, like, sharks are evil creatures. Like, I don't think... I, I don't blame them in the slightest for eating this enormous piece of food that's being dragged yep. through the water by people who aren't even yep. going to eat it. Ishmael is very anti-shark, but we want to be clear to uh, all, what, Gargura fans? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that we are not anti-shark. Please don't send us hate mail. Uh, um, now I'm just picturing, like, Moe shark girls swarming a whale corpse that's your problem you put this evil on me (laughs) anyways while the um one thing that's noted is that uh stub is eating this whale by two uh lanterns filled with spermaceti so he is eating sperm whale by the light of sperm whale yeah, okay, we'll talk about that. Let's talk about that when we get to the whale. No, no, he, it's it. mentioned no, here. No, I know it's mentioned here. It's just, that is discussed in greater detail. That's fair. That's uh, fair. In The Whale is a Dish. Mm-hmm. And I really want to talk about, like, the rhetoric of that chapter, the way that I find it very confusing from a modern perspective. Yeah, that's that's very fair. So, okay, right now, sharks. There's uh, the really fun thing that Ishmael notes here is that 
like if you're sleeping down in the hold of the ship in like the cruise quarters you can hear the sharks bumping up against the hull as they're swarming around the whale um uh his state he says you know um within a few inches of the sleeper's hearts. Yes. So if you are a you know sailor, you are now very aware that just a few inches of wood separate you from, like, sharks. A lot of sharks. Too many sharks. Yeah. Yeah, certainly that experience does go a certain way towards explaining how, like, uh, scared Ishmael is of sharks. Like, I... You know, I, I can imagine that, like, being very conscious of their presence just a few inches away and the fact yeah, that they yeah. would probably eat you if, like, your body was thrown overboard. Yep, yep. And they, um, they're also taking out, like, co- cookie-cutter-style bites of whale. And Ishmael's very impressed by this, but also horrified. Yeah, he, he uh, it, it seems like the bites that sharks take out of the whale are, like, exactly spherical. And uh, Ishmael doesn't know how they do that. Or at least hemispherical, probably. Globular. Um, but uh, he also makes this very fun sort of reference to, um, uh, you know, though amid all the smoking horror and diabolism of a sea fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up to the ship's decks like hungry dogs around a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them. And then he goes on to say that, you know, uh, really, in a fight like that, what you have above is the people serving meat to the sharks sharkishly. And if you flipped it upside down so the sharks were on deck and the people with swords were in the water, you wouldn't really have changed anything. They're all sharks. Um, yes. um, you know, it's a shocking sharkish business enough for all parties. Uh, but he is also... Uh, uh, Ishmael is kind of, like, listing these different situations in which sharks would be, like, swarming around a ship because there are dead people being tossed off yes. the ship. Yes, yeah. another example is um, slave ships would toss people overboard. And this might also... It's not mentioned in Power Moby Dick, which I see over your shoulder, but the... Um, there's a specific instance that I can't remember the name of the ship where basically in order to escape an anti-slavery British like captain, because I think at this point in time, the British had officially abolished the slave trade, um, though this might not be that. By the time Moby Dick is being ridden, British abolitionists have succeeded in abolishing the British slave trade. Um, there was a famous slave ship that dumped the entire living cargo of kidnapped people over the side in chains and it's uh there's like a turner painting that depicts like a you know sort of an imagined version of this that's horrifying there's a bunch of like very um i I can't remember if that was pre or post abolition actually anyways the point being he's referencing a known image of this atrocity that occurred um at least i think he is uh around this time yeah that that seems possible um I, I know uh, one thing the Power Moby Dick does specify is that uh, uh, the transatlantic slave trade yes. had been banned by 1831. Yes. Like, by, by the U.S. as well as England. Yeah, the, the U.S. did not um, uh, go in for it, but it was very much because of uh, English abolitionists. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, there was still an illegal trade yes. going on. Um, because there was, you know, still slavery in the United States, for example. Right. Um, so I think that that is almost certainly referencing that specific and famous, like, I think references to a feast for the sharks appeared in discussion of it and stuff. It's, it's just a literally important moment. Yeah. Anyways, that's grim. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, Ishmael's point is, 
Um, even though sharks are known to, like, follow ships in these other circumstances, hoping to eat dead people, um, actually when they swarm around a whale ship carrying a dead whale, that is when they are most active and, like, when there's the largest number of them. Uh, I, I believe when you say active, you mean you will never find them in gayer or more jovial spirits than around a dead sperm whale moored at night by night to a whale ship at sea. Yes, <laughs> gayer and jovial spirits is how he describes it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Also, he, um, if you have never seen that site, then suspend your decision about the propriety of devil worship and the expediency of conciliating the devil, which, is he basically saying, look, okay, the devil, evil, but have you seen his parties? <laughs> I don't think he's saying that it looks like it would be fun to be a shark. I think he's saying if you've seen, like, a, a, a shark's feeding frenzy around a dead whale, you would be sufficiently terrified that you would want to try to make peace with the devil and not end up being, you know, the target of that. I guess. That's sure. what conciliating means here, I think. Mm. Like, like, uh, you know, um, oh, appeasing. Like, yeah, that that makes sense. Also, expediency. Like, he's not saying the desirability, but like, mm, it's, it's yeah. a... Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think I think you're right that this particular conciliation is, a, is an amoral arrangement to ensure uh, a certain kind of survival. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um... Uh, However, now we get to Stubb. Right. So while all this is going on, Stubb is ignoring the sharks, and uh, he decides to give the cook a hard time. God, he really does. Yeah. Uh, so he, he summons the cook, uh, whose name, or possibly nickname, probably a nickname, is Fleece. Um, and uh, uh, so the, the cook is uh, a black man. And, uh, a very old man as well. He walks like he uses the um his like tongs for cooking, which are a pair of barrel staves that have been shaped for like a cane. Which so he's got a very like clear sense of style, and unfortunately, that extends to writing all of his like conversation in extreme eye dialect. Yeah, it's 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 pretty rough. Uh, it's, as far as it's like, a hard time uh, reading this in the twenty first century. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, if we do, there are a few lines of his I want to quote, and I'm going to try and do them with none of the I dialect. Mm, you're just going to, like, translate it? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to not, you know, say the words as if I was doing a minstrel show. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, so, uh, Stubb, like, summons the cook and uh, complains to him that the steak is overcooked. Yes. Um, and, you know, uh... Uh, the cook, Old Fleece, is like, nope, this is this is the best steak I ever cooked. Um, you know, there's, there's a certain degree of, uh, fuck you, this is the middle of the night and it's a whale steak, what do you want? Yes, um, and uh, Stubb decides as a way of making his point and, you know, just, I don't know, being a jerk. Being a jerk, mostly. Uh, he, he, he's like, oh, uh, look at those sharks, they like their whale steak rare, why don't you go... Uh, talk to them and, and tell them to be a little quieter, preach to them. Uh, so, you know, just ordering someone to do something totally absurd because he can. Yep. And someone who, like, clearly has a hard time walking and has, like, aching knees and is, like, like bent double over his, uh, his tongs cane. And so Stubb sends him over and then I think this is just the... The bit that makes Stubb the most obnoxious is that Stubb doesn't, like, walk over with him. No, Stubb sneaks along behind him. Yeah. Yeah. He is described as softly crawling behind. God. Uh, so, uh, 
then there's this kind of back and forth where uh, at, at first uh, Fleece's way of addressing the sharks is too rude for Stubbs' taste. Yes, he's just... I mean, he's like, he's kind of swearing at them. Yeah, he's uh, just yelling at them, you know, stop that damn noise. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, Stubbs' like, no, no, no. You're supposed to be preaching to them. Uh, that's no way to convert sinners. Um, so, you know, then... Uh, the cook gets pushed into, like, attempting a conciliatory, uh, you know, uh, sermon to convince the sharks to eat as much as they want, but quietly. Yes. Um, uh, I do like his... Because um, I do like this little line. Um, you, now, you're sharks, but if you govern the shark in you... Why? Then you're an angel. For an angel is nothing more than a shark well-governed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does, like, uh, do this... Like, he, he manages to pull out an actual yeah. shark sermon. Yeah, um, no, it's... It's very applicable to the themes of the book. I suppose, yeah. Um, uh, but, uh... Like, like, specifically, he talks about how, you know... Uh, you know, the sharks with the large mouths but the small bellies should tear off, you know, more than they can eat so that the smaller fry can get at it. And, uh, you know, he's expressing an idea of, like, charity and, you know, so and you know well-governance and uh, virtue for sharks, you know, because Stubb is right there egging him on. And then Stubb says, yep, that's Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, like, perhaps... Um... Like, the ironic joke here is that expecting human beings to, like, modulate their, yeah. uh, you know, uh, brutal and, and carnivorous natures um, for the sake of, like, helping each other is maybe just as ridiculous as it is to expect sharks to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, like I said, it's to the themes of the book, which is very much not taking a side in an obvious way. But, you know, I think it's important that there's this moment of, like, this parody of Christianity, at least as Stubb sees it of asking something impossible from these sharks for them to modulate their, you know, baser urges, I guess, their hungers. And it's very much, I think, parallel to um, to Starbuck, who is trying to modulate Ahab via the, you know, via, you know, but consider reasonableness and Christianity and your family. And, they, you know, this has no effect on Ahab. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um... Uh, so, uh, eventually it's, uh, it's enough for Stubb. And so he says, uh, give the benediction and I'll away to my supper. Um, uh. The benediction itself is pretty great. Yes. At this point, uh, the cook is done being nice to the sharks and, and tells them, uh, basically to like, uh, Eat as much as you can and die. Specifically, um, you know, make as much noise as you can, uh, fill your bellies till they burst, then die. Because there's sort of this suggestion that if the shark, if a shark overeats, it'll just, it'll kill itself that way. And so Fleece is very on board with this. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Stubb said, okay, say that and then I'll go to bed. But uh, he's not actually done, um, you know... Uh, making trouble yeah for no because he's gonna make fleece stand by the capstan where he's eating which i don't think he has a chair i think he's just standing by the capstan eating yeah i mean in fairness i think pretty much everyone eats standing up on this ship like i don't think there are many chairs anywhere. i wouldn't be surprised if there's chairs in like the um the captain's court in like the uh, captain's dining well room. okay yes i'm sure there are chairs in there 
Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like, most of the seamen probably eat their meals just, like, leaning against the side. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, sitting on a barrel or something. But Yeah, it's... I think eating standing up at the capstan is not particularly unusual. That's that's very fair. Anyways, he's now like, so, uh, Fleece, how old are you? Yeah, and, and uh, basically, uh, he, he just, like, engages him in this, like, long and unnecessary series of questions so that he can make the point of, like, uh, look, you've lived in this world for all these years and you don't know how to cook a whale steak, so you have to go home and be born again. Um, yeah, it's... Also, I gotta say, this man is 90 years old, and he's still working as a cook on a whaling ship, and I'm just like, oh no. I know, that's really fucking sad. Um, and, uh... He was also him... born on a ferry boat, which feels mythically resonant for the book, but I have no idea how. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, he... Stubb makes him, like, try a piece of it, and it's like, oh, tell me if you think that's good. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. It's the best steak I ever cooked. Uh, and then, you know, Stubb is like, oh, I can't believe you, a Christian, a person who once saw a church in your life, uh, have told me such a horrible lie. You're going to go to hell. Um, yeah, I really like the note that um, uh, Fleece, when, when asked, like, where are you going after, you know, when you die, what do you think is going to happen? His entire, like, manner changed. And he's just like, I think an angel is going to personally come down and take me up to heaven like Elijah. Like, he's just completely un... He is untroubled by Stubb's dislike, except to the extent that Stubb can actually, like, you know, order him to do shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, Stubb just, you know, kind of continues to harangue him and tell him he's going to hell for lying and all of that shit yep he also Um, gives his instructions for how to properly cook a whale steak yes uh uh that that's kind of what he builds up towards yeah that that is the i guess almost the last bit of his uh exhausting speech yep Um, uh the other the actual last bit is like giving some extra instructions for how to like preserve and prepare and cut some more whale bits that he'll want later yes uh and uh yeah do we want to give his instructions well i i thought you were going to oh, you're okay. the one who had the joke to make about it i was waiting for you to say oh sure right right that thing sorry i completely forgotten about that. oh my god no um so what he says is something very similar to what my to like uh my grandpa's old joke about the proper way to cook a steak is to uh get the cow to jump over the fire and then bring it to the table. Um, in his case, it's you take the whale steak in one hand and a live coal in the other and you show them to each other. And then you're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, then uh, with the immortal final line, whale balls for breakfast, don't forget. I He has to mean like meatballs. Like, yes, like, he means meatballs. Uh, he, we, we are not eating uh, whale sweetbreads here. Uh, I don't even know. I thought sweetbreads were brains. Or is Possible the term is used for multiple different weird chunks of meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Anyways, uh, we, we do in fact have a discussion of whale sweetbreads of that kind later. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Whale balls for breakfast, don't forget. God, that sounds like a, a punishment. I, I mean, I think 
having to get up early and make some meatballs out of whale meat does sound like a punishment, yeah, yes. Yeah, no, disagree. no, you're right there. But I do love um, the old cook's last line of the chapter, which is, you know, I wish the whale would eat him rather than him eating the whale. He's more of a shark than Master Shark himself. Ben, I cannot believe you actually... Look, guys, we told you it was I dialect. You know what word Ben just uh, bodlerized into master? I don't. Yeah, why I, did sorry. you say that, Ben? Because I, because I thought that the, the figure of like, you know, like the shark, like yeah, the no. generalized shark, having an honorific like Sir Shark or whatever, is actually like an effective rhetorical device there. Okay, fair enough. Like I, I just, I, I have been attempting or hoping that people would not be able to, like, directly read what we were avoiding saying, you know? Okay, but we, we said what kind of I dialect it is. We should be honest about that. Yeah, whatever. You can all go read this chapter yourselves. It's very racist. It is. It, I mean, you know. I mean, for the, for the present day, arguments can be made about it, but it certainly is not something that you would ever want to, like, read aloud in its original yeah, what the hell do people do with this chapter for audiobooks of Moby Dick? I assume they just do it because that's how audiobooks work. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that is what they do, and then but they maybe shouldn't. They, maybe they just feel kind of bad about themselves and their moralism score increases. <laughs> you dork. Yeah, I'm a dork. Anyways, I really like that bit because it's, it's summing up the whole chapter, which is the idea that Stubb is in fact, the way Stubb is acting and the way he's behaving and his appetites are sharkish which has been the running thread throughout the whole chapter he's uh, a person who is choosing to be like this to other people and towards whales is actually more upsetting than the very vividly painted sharks who are themselves very physically upsetting yeah yeah i think that is basically what's being and, the point that's being made here yeah and, and that's why i felt that that was worth attempting to render into a speakable form yeah fair enough Fair enough. <sighs> Anyways, that does get us to chapter 65, the whale as a dish. Yeah, okay, so... Whales are a snack. <sighs> Sorry. <sighs> okay, um, so, yeah, uh, this is now Ishmael is deciding to, like, discuss basically the moral issue of whether it is okay or, like, makes sense to eat whales. Well, the moral and, like... Like, like, social issue. Like, is it polite to eat whales is as important as if it's, like, good to eat whales. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I think his specific line at the beginning here, which, which we sort of referred forwards towards, is really good. Do you, do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and, like Stubb, eat him by his own light, as you may say. This seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. Um, and I guess... Like, the thing that's weird for me about this chapter is that uh, Ishmael is basically addressing this to an imagined audience who will have, after that previous chapter, had the reaction of, like, eating a lamp, eating a whale by the light of a whale oil lamp. That's disgusting and bizarre and I don't understand it. And, like, I'm not saying that the idea of eating whales strikes me as, like, normal. Like, I've... It's normal I, to eat whales. No. I'm I'm sure it's illegal. It's normal for sharks. <laughs> Yes, but like, you know, because like hunting whales is illegal yeah, yeah, yeah. in the modern world. So like, I most don't, places. I don't know of anyone ever having eaten whale meat. Yeah, but um, but I don't at all have the I guess like 
19th century landsman's reaction that Mo, uh, that, that this book is, is presuming upon. Yeah. And, and to be so, fair, this is Ishmael, so he might be he might be more interested in the philosophical question of eating a whale by whale light, which very much has to me the same energy as like uh, "Thou shalt not boil the, la- the uh, calf in its mother's milk." Right, and so like, okay, that's the thing. Uh, okay, we can go into like just summarizing this chapter in general, but I I'm interested more at this moment in just kind of talking about like its argument, and so I sort of yeah. want to skip ahead because he he gets to the end of it. You know, he mentions this idea of eating the whale by its own light in the first sentence, but then he doesn't really, he gets back to it in the last paragraph. Um, and he's like, oh, that's adding insult to injury, is it? Well, what about people who would eat beef with a, like a cow bone handled knife? Or what about people who would, um, you know, eat a goose and then pick their teeth with the feather? Um, and uh, he even makes up a guy to get mad at. Did he make up a guy? Oh yeah, this is not real. Uh, let me read the sentences. And with what quill did the secretary of the Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formerly indict his circulars? It is only within the last month or two that that society passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. Wow, I I assumed that this was a at real... least an organization that existed. So, uh, PowerMobyDick.com suggests that he is making fun of something like the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals which was found in England in 1824. So, like, there existed, you know... Humane societies for exactly. the, you know, consideration of animals' welfare. But but, but I think gander-specific ones, no. Yeah, and this is this specifically also in the context of mentioning ha- that uh, pâté de foie gras is kind of upsetting uh, in its production. Yeah, so I guess, basically, the thing that I'm saying here is this idea that it is somehow, like, um, disturbing to eat meat while also using like other products of the same animal in some other way yeah like i understand the kind of philosophical idea or like the i don't know if philosophical is quite the right i understand like the taboo that might be at work here but like i don't think that like you know you don't think uh, anyone actually cares i i I find it hard to imagine that they do. Yes, like yeah. And, uh, like, so I will say, I think that part of this is not so much actually that sort of vaguely, um, you know, uh, vaguely like, oh, this is this is somehow adding insult to injury. I think the actual reason people would find it weird is that they think of the whale as an industrial source of fuel. You can't like eat lamp oil. You can't drink it. And I think that there is, to some extent, like a a certain degree of him insisting on the the meat and like animality, to use a obnoxious word, um, of the whale, as opposed to just thinking of it as a source of oil. So, and he's sort of bringing that into contrast by talking about the oil lamp and the steak. But for Ishmael, because Ishmael's a weirdo, he's decided to make it an argument about why don't people eat whale. Yeah, I guess basically I'm trying to imagine the person who would genuinely say, well, I just think it's bad that Stubb is eating the whale by its own light. But who would then be... weird. But who... Like, I can imagine the person making that argument, but then Ishmael is proposing that that same person would be gotcha'd by this, like, uh, you know, oxbone knife idea. Because 
Ishmael is trying to make a principled argument that draws this sort of abstract connection, whereas the real reason someone would find eating a whale by its own light weird is just because they haven't experienced it and it's not part of their usage or habit. Like, that's the thing, is that Ishmael is the ultimate internet nerd <laughs> trying to make the argument that actually, when you think about it, normal things are just as weird as this thing most people don't do. As though the reason why people think it's weird is because of a philosophical or abstract uh, issue with it, rather than the fact that most people don't have a chance to eat whale by whale light. Yeah, you know, I think you were exactly right. And I think that is basically the, the, the confusion that I was having with this chapter is that the entire chapter is Ishmael creating a, like an imaginary interlocutor. And I felt like the difficulty I was having in imagining that person had something to do with, you know, historicity. But I think you're right that part of what is going on here is also that like Ishmael is misrepresenting the actual reasons that people would be weirded out by eating whales yeah no i i think that on some level melville wanted to go through a bit of a uh like discussion of just eating whales and ishmael always has an opinion on everything yeah but like you know uh, to go through the chapter you know, now that we fully we've squeezed all the spermaceti from this chapter uh, but now let's deal with the meat yeah um, so he, he just kind of goes over like uh, descriptions of all the different historical instances he can think of of people being known to eat whales. Yep, uh, apparently porpoises are to this day considered fine eating, which, yikes. Um, and also the idea that the, uh, you know, people have this prejudice against whales, but it's just because there's so much goddamn whale in a whale that it takes your appetite away. Yeah, like, you but can't... like, looking at just that sheer amount of meat is somehow uh, bothersome. Yep, um. uh... He mentions that some cultures do, in fact, like, subsist in large part on whale hunting at this time. There's a lot of whale being eaten. Um, and that uh, whalers who have been, like, um, stuck on, sh uh, like, shipwrecked or uh, stranded and had to eat, like, the cast-off whales that have been fully processed. Yeah, although, uh, uh, apparently he's incorrect about that, says PowerMobyDick.com. Oh. Like, there was a—he's referring to a specific incident oh. in which— uh, <laughs> Eight people were accidentally stranded on Greenland in the 1630s. Um, but uh, supposedly, at least according to PowerMobyDick.com, uh, they survived by hunting, not uh, not leftover whale scraps. Ishmael, you've misled me. Anyways, uh, he also mentions that apparently, man, he, he really likes to attribute to the Dutch... Um, like, all of these odd, uh, you know, um, whaling habits. Uh -huh. Like, he is really dedicated to the idea that most of the weird stuff in whaling comes from the Dutch. But he mentions that among the Dutch whalemen, these scraps are called fritters. Uh, these are scraps of um, whale that have been, again, processed for blubber, but you've still got scraps from the... Um, uh, from the whale carcass uh, that you uh, that are browned and crisped because they've had, the, like, basically the blubber cooked off them. Um, and, uh, he describes them as smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' dough nuts, with a hyphen between dough and nut, or ollie cooks when fresh, and they, um, they have such an eatable look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. Uh, I think he suggests that, um, whalemen dip them in the, uh, like, 
No, he's oh, not. No, no. He's not suggesting that they dip the fritters because that would oh, okay. be basically dipping like something a piece fried of fried into skin yeah, yeah, into you're right, frying. Right. But no, what he does suggest is that uh, sometimes when uh, you know when they are uh, basically boiling the oil out of the blubber of a whale, uh, seamen sometimes dip their ship biscuit into those giant bubbling oil pots and and fry them like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which, oh, I, you know, I will say, thinking about that, uh, I guess I do experience a little bit of the feeling of confusion that maybe uh, Ishmael is responding to here, where it's like, yeah, th- the idea of it, the same oil that is going to be used as, like, fuel, fuel oil. also being, like, edible oil that you can fry something in, like, could, weirds me out a little bit. I don't think in the modern world there really are many oils that are used no for we, both we use petrochemicals y- yeah you can't eat those. uh do not do not dip your ship's biscuit into boiling gasoline <laughs> yeah. uh but he does um he also describes like how um you know the whale is uh so rich that it's kind of inedible like um it's there's so much fat and blubber and richness that eating away eating whale steak requires a very like on some little coarse palate that you can just, you can take it. Um, and he also talks about it being just, like, solid fat. And, like, the spermaceti itself, how bland and creamy that is. Like the transparent half-jellied white meat of a coconut in the third month of its growth, which, super specific. Um, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Like, you could use it as, like, a spreading fat. It's an oil. It's, like, incredibly rich. You've tapped it directly from the head of a whale. But it's so rich that it just overwhelms everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he gets into uh, the sweet meats. Well, uh, we're talking about in this case uh, whale brains. Mm-hmm. Um, sperm whale brains. Yeah, small Appar- sperm whale brains. Apparently, people eat those. Um, and uh, this leads him to like a ridiculous little comparison of like he's basically saying that people who eat calves heads are stupid yeah i mean well okay so what he's describing is um first of all the idea is that you basically take out the brain and use it to make like a meat and flour pudding which is considered a dish among some quite a dish among some epicures uh and then he just sort of makes fun of young epicures talking about how they eat so many calves brains eventually they'll come to have some level of brains themselves but then it makes it quite a sad sight to see a calves head on the table and a calves head on the epicure looking at each other the one reproachful yeah Uh, i admit that that little bit of social satire went entirely over my head because i have never known an epicurean club obsessed with eating brains yeah uh, so, yeah, very unctuous, very rich. Um, but there's also this sort of moral sense of, like, you just killed it and now you're going to eat it. That feels somewhat, you know, uncouth, brutish. Uh, and so he, you know, goes into a discussion of that. And uh, I love his little, like, hypothetical here. Ah, uh, you mean about the first man that ever murdered an ox? Yes, no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Perhaps he was hung, and if he'd been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been. Uh, But, you know, we're all used to eating cows, basically, is what he's arguing. Uh, And he does literally suggest that, you know, actually, I think things will go better for literal cannibals uh, on the Day of Judgment uh, than for, you know, European 
gourmands who enjoy foie gras, which is like, you know, that sounds like a classic, classic thing Ishmael would say. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's, he's expressing an empathy for the, um, you know, for the not quite factory farmed yet, but like the, the uh, farmed prepared, and in the case of foie gras, like pretty badly treated, uh, like animals that become, become meat. Uh, he's not actually taking a vegetarian position. He's just taking the position that whales aren't any worse. Yeah, yeah. Because he's certainly not going to stop eating meat on this or stop hunting whales on this voyage. Yeah, this is sort of, I think, uh, of a piece with the kinds of points that I think Ishmael often makes, which are that, like, you know, I guess, uh, to put it very conventionally, that we are all sinners. Um, yeah, or, it's like, the thing is, I don't think it's so much about sin as about saying, whale men actually aren't any worse than in some ways better than your high society mavens. D- yes, I mean, that. yes, but, like, I... I think the way he often expresses that idea is by saying that, like, everyone in the world actually does things that are just as fucked up as anything that you might accuse whalemen of doing. We live in a society. <laughs> yes. Uh, except for, apparently, cannibals, who therefore are a bit more blameless. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, I think that's pretty much this chapter. Yep, yep. The whale is a dish. Yep. Which brings us to the shark massacre in yes. chapter 66. The shark massacre. Uh, so, first of all... Um, it's, uh, you know, he mentions that it's not, this is, an, uh, this is an instance of being slightly, like, chronologically odd, because now he explains that it's normally usual to leave the whale tied up all night and get to uh, the cutting in in the morning. Um, but the uh, real question is, are there too many sharks to do that? Yeah. Uh, and and the, the, the reason for this, of course, is that, like, everyone is completely exhausted from hunting the whale and rowing it back. Yeah. Um, so that, that is why it would be preferable to leave cutting in until the morning. Also, you want good light to see by. Mm, yes, that also makes sense. Um, uh, but there, is, there are times when you can't do that because, especially, uh, I guess, especially in, like, the most tropical of waters, right? Yeah, yeah so, on the line in the Pacific is what he specifies. Yeah, there are so many sharks uh, that... If you actually just left the whale out overnight, they would, you know, get all the blubber. Yes, they, you would not have a usable whale in the morning. Yeah, he he, I I'm I'm sure he exaggerates when he says little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. Yeah, I have no idea how much sharks can skeletonize a whale corpse. I have no way of measuring that or imagining that. So I'm just going to take him at his word. Yeah, fair enough. Just a um, big old whale skeleton like a Far Side cartoon. Yeah, certainly it, on some level it doesn't actually matter whether they eat all the way through the flesh of the whale to the bones if they get all the outer layer of blubber then you then the whale ruined the whale fucked. yeah yeah because that's what i mean you can maybe you can get the spermaceti and maybe ambergris but that's about it yeah um why am i thinking about this so closely anyways <laughs> i uh, couldn't say ben I mean, probably because we've been reading this book but. yeah uh so um the uh the normal way of um dealing with the problem of sharks uh, and like kind of uh, rendering them less of an issue while you're waiting to yeah is is to attack them with your whaling spades i believe he actually describes it as vigorously stirring them well yes but he literally is talking about like stabbing them and trying to kill them (laughs) yes because so a whaling spade which in a helpful um like footnote he mentions is a uh, very nice steel uh, tool it's about as large it is about the bigness of a man's spread hand i, I just find the word bigness very funny yeah he, he's he's used that word several times in this book and it does always charm me a little bit yep yep and so it's got a like a wider bottom end it's sort it's shaped like a spade generally and it's socketed 
onto a um, 20 or 30 foot long pole. So it's basically a pole arm because what you do is you lean over the side of the ship and you can poke it into the water. Yes. Um, and it's, it's used in preparing the whale carcass. But um, Ishmael is suggesting that people who are on, on, um, on watch overnight, because there's like watches of two people as everyone else gets enough sleep to get ready for the big uh, whale preparation the next morning, um, they're just going to go at the sharks and, um, you know, uh, try and stir them up and make them, um, make them not get at the whale as much and uh, kill a few. And he, um, some of his descriptions here are quite distressing. <laughs> yeah, so, so, the, so supposedly after Stubb finished eating and went to bed, uh, Queequeg and another seaman uh, took the watch and were attacking the sharks. Um, but, An incessant murdering of the sharks. <laughs> yes. Just um, constantly murdering sharks. Uh, but uh, in the cases where they don't directly strike the sharks in the head and kill them immediately, um, they sometimes you know, just injure them, which creates uh, a, a, a scene that I do not credit, but that I think is interesting that Ishmael describes, where um, the sharks are not only attacking their, like, injured fellow sharks, but also curling back around and eating themselves. Yes, the he specifically describes a shark that is wounded in the side eating its own entrails that are coming out, and then the entrails come back out the hole again. Which is horrifying. Yeah! Um, and, apparently, uh, even a dead shark uh, can be very dangerous, because... Even a dead sh a shark's head can still bite. Eh? Eh? It's, it's Princess Mononoke, but with sharks. Oh, yeah, Sorry. sure. Sorry, I'm it just It took me a second. I... Anyway, um, yeah, so supposedly uh, there was a... They, they hauled a shark on board to get its skin, um... And when Queequeg was trying to close its jaw, uh, it almost took his hand off. Yeah, it um it bit down supposedly with strength, uh, and he he just des Ishmael describes this as like um a sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones after what might be called the individual life had departed. Also, speaking of these very cool descriptions, he also has one that just made my stomach absolutely churn, but in a, in a minor way, um, which is that if you look over the side at these sharks, even though there's not so many that it's a problem, uh, and if you were, but if you were unaccustomed to this, you would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks the maggots in it. Yeah, that is disgusting, but it, it's gives, horrible. it gives you a good image, I suppose. I, I don't even like cheese. It's horrible. <laughs> um... And the chapter ends with, again, uh, I mean, as we've seen before with Queequeg, more I dialect in a way that's, you know, unquotable. But but I do want to, like, say what Queequeg is actually communicating here. Yeah, but, yeah, he says it in a way that's, like, I think you put in the notes, almost too bizarrely racist to discuss. Yeah, so, um, so, like, you know, translating, I guess. Uh, he says, I don't care what God made the shark whether it was a, you know, a Fiji god or a Nantucket god. Uh, but whatever god made that shark has to be... <laughs> the worst. Yeah, so what he li what, what he actually says is uh, one damn Indian. Except, okay, I died. With a G. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, obviously what he means is, you know, whatever god made the shark uh, is a total, like, terrifying person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, it, it's... There's... Like, 
very clearly what they mean is a savage. Yes. And, like, there's clearly a certain irony that is supposed to be here that Queequeg has picked up this term for what, you know, what means savage, and it's a term that is, like, racialized. And I think that's an intentional irony, but I have no idea where the, like we said, so bizarrely racist that it's impossible to figure out what the actual irony or joke or lack of joke is supposed to be. Yeah, I also do really love the idea that Queequeg, like, Queequeg's perspective on the Christian god is that, like, he does exist, and he made at least some of the animals, but he is, like, native specifically to Nantucket. Yeah, no, the Nantucket god. Uh, you know, um, it is true that Ishmael has been arguing strenuously that it is specifically a Nantucket thing to lift a leviathan out with a hook. Which is the line from Job. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Uh, but he's been arguing that it's Nantucketers who do that. So by Ishmael has definitely been bending Queequeg's ear in a way that would strongly imply God is an Nantucketer. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I do also love the image of uh, after he gets this like unexpected bite, uh, Queequeg is, quote, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down just like ooh yeah same when i close like a, a a cupboard door on my hand or something i also like shake it up and down going Ugh. yeah huh. i wonder what they wanted the shark skin for i mean it billiard tables <laughs> well i i it, like that's my point i wonder what they were yeah. gonna make out of it because yeah, i assume to be clear, that that's part of a classic shaggy dog story um the round cornerless uh, three-legged sharkskin billiard table. but Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think they actually made billiard tables with sharkskin, but it is a very nice material, apparently. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I guess they they wanted a sharkskin, and uh, Queequeg paid for it in hand pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we get chapter 67, Cutting In. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be some great full-on whaling content. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is how you dismantle a whale. Now, if you're following along at home, you'll want to have your hooks, giant block and ch- tackle, whaling spades, whale, <laughs> ship, uh, large crew, and probably, um, since you're going to be in the splash zone, you're going to want to wear a um, uh, rain jacket. God. It starts with, can, can I? do you want to read the first paragraph or can I? No, you can go for I it. I love it so much. It was a Saturday night, and such a Sabbath as followed. Ex officio professors of Sabbath breaking are all whalemen. The ivory peckwad was turned into what seemed a shamble, every sailor a butcher. You would have thought we were offering up 10,000 red oxen to the sea gods. So, just everything that is described, just imagine it being progressively more covered in blood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh... This is, to be clear, this is the process of stripping the blubber off of the whale. Yes. Um, what is called dressing the whale, I believe. I think that was the term used? Uh, sure. Anyways. I would believe that that, I, I, I think the phrase generally used for this as a whole is cutting in. So cutting in is the, is the, like, the beginning. It's when you literally cut into the whale, you hook in the thing, and you start removing it. I think that the, the process is the process of producing the blanket. Anyways, let, let's go through step by step. I, I think actually that the entire process of peeling uh, peeling the strips of blubber off the whale is called cutting it. Oh, okay. Like, I think that's why this whole chapter is called that. Okay. Um, uh, but 
I, I could be wrong. It's, uh, it's the process of dismantling the whale, whatever it's called. Yes. Ishmael's not super clear about whether the whole process has a name. Yeah, uh, so... Uh, so we, as Ben mentioned, uh, one of the important pieces of equipment here are like a giant block and tackle. Yeah, a um, set of them. Like, uh, he describes that since it's a, a cluster of blocks generally painted green, and which no single man can possibly lift, this vast bunch of grapes, because it's just a bunch of block and tackles and sections, uh, because it needs to raise a huge amount of force, and it's multiple, uh, it has multiple lines. Yeah. Um... By the way, uh, this is maybe easier to picture if you actually have a sense in your mind of what a block and tackle looks like. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, which is, like, specifically, it's a it's an arrangement of, like, multiple different pulleys. One at the top, one at the bottom. You've got ropes connecting the two of them. There's various different ways that they can actually have the rope yeah, threaded between them. And it's, the... the point of the pulley arrangement is that it changes the relationship between the amount of rope being pulled on one end and how far the actual like lifting occurs so that it reduces the amount of force you need to use per uh, length of rope to draw the thing up, which makes it possible for a crew of people to lift something as huge and heavy as a whale by taking tons of rope around a capstan and winding it and winding it and winding it. Yes. Uh, so they've, like they've got these, like uh, they've got these pulley systems hoisted up to the main top. Uh, and like onto the strongest part on the mast, like it's the, it's I think like two thirds or half the way up the uh, the mast, not all the way to the top, but yeah. um, high enough that you can get good leverage. And the and when you and basically you have a giant hook that gets lowered down from this block and tackle. I think he mentions that it's a hundred pounds of iron. Yes. Um, and that hook. Uh, so first you you use the whale spades to cut like a hole in the blubber. And to cut a little bit around the, the hole to set the, like, setup of the strip, you put the hook in through the hole, and then you just lift the whale. Yes. And um, to be clear, it's not all completely done just by the force of the whale at pulling it apart. They are also using the whale spades this whole time to, like, cut the sides of the strip. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. it's the, the blubber strip is being lifted, and the entire, um, the entire boat will, like heel over a bit because you know you've got this um this block and tackle basically like out on a or this um hook out on a crane off the side of the boat so that it can reach over the whale um so that's going to pull the entire boat sideways yeah and nearly the entire crew are uh winding uh this huge rope that ultimately attaches to the whale uh, um, around the windlass around the windlass yeah um while uh you know starbuck and stub are cutting the strip out of the sides of the whale with the spades and as they're winding it it's pulling the strip up off the whale and the whale itself is spinning in the water yeah so once once the once the blubber starts to separate and the whale like drops back into the water from its lift because the whale's own weight is what's being used to make it start separating yes um and the presumably although it's not i think really detailed the entire ship has to rock like hell when that happens yeah no he said that's oh detailed. yeah nice 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 with a great swash the ship rolls upward and backwards oh, yep, from yep, the whale yep, yep, yep. so that's what happens when yeah basically they they for for a brief period of time the um the giant hook is tugging the entire oh, yeah, whale the out spit. of the water yep. and then suddenly the blubber comes loose and there's a like snap and it uh 
Yeah. Yeah, his description is, when instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, when they start pulling, instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, every bolt in her starts like the nail heads of an old house in frosty weather. She trembles, quivers, and nods her frightened mastheads to the sky. I, I was just remembering the, like, the moment of healing over where the whole boat is straining to pull this whale into the air uh, that I forgot that when the when the rub when the blubber's connection to the whale finally gives way and the whale falls in, he does describe the like the backwash and the whole thing rocking. It's a very impressive image, and also I would be fucking terrified to be on a boat that was doing any part of this process. Yeah, the fact that this is just like a kind of mechanized process that everyone is used to that just like functions this way normally every time they get a whale is absurd yeah like here's the thing the larger the boat you're on the more intense it feels when it heals over and like a big wooden sailing boat like this you don't want to heal a ton over because it might capsize yeah um so they're doing this on purpose and the whole thing is floating side i'm just like i'm not hardcore enough for that yeah uh, uh so they 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 peel a strip of blubber as as high as they can get it and the uh, whale the whale is rotating in the water and uh he directly compares it to like how you can peel an entire orange in a single strip if you do it as like a spiral yeah which i'm just like i've done that oh god i haven't done that yeah uh and but um once the top of the strip of blubber has reached you know the top of the of where it's attached as hard as high as you can raise it with the because uh, it's up to the block and tackle yeah, at that point, uh, they stop pulling at the windlass. Uh, and at that point, the entire, like, s- the entire blubber strip, like, sways in the air. And yep, you have to, yep. like, dodge it. Uh, and everyone present must take good heed to dodge it when it swings, else it may box his ears and pitch him headlong overboard. So there's this giant, incredibly heavy mass of whale meat that's just, like, attached to the whale and attached to the block and tackle and, like, wobbling. And yes. yeah, it would just, it would be like getting punched with the the fist of an angry, blubbery god. Yeah, uh, and then one of the harpooners comes forward, and with a boarding sword, which is the sword you would use to attack when boarding an enemy vessel. So he, he they say a long, keen weapon called a boarding sword. Is that the same boarding sword that you'd use for boarding, or is it yes. just something called the same thing? Yes, it's the same sword. Um, Damn. PowerMobyDick.com says, A sword meant for close combat, as when boarding an enemy vessel. Okay, so it's just an actual sword. Um, and yeah, so he's supposed to slice a hole into the mass first. Like, you don't just chop it off. First, you make a hole, you put another hook through the hole, then you chop it off, and you can wind, and you can wind the whole thing up. Or, yeah, you have, a, you have this, like, big... Uh, or no no no. So I think the whole the hole. No, the hole is below the cut. Yeah. Right, so right, he, right. the the hole is so that a second uh, hook ju- from the tackle. Yeah, exactly. Can be attached to create a new strip that's going to start yeah, peeling yeah, yeah, off yeah. the whale. In the meantime, you slice off the. Sorry, I just got the order of operations slightly wrong. You slice off the old strip, so now it's just dangling free, and then you lower that into a um, hole in the deck, into a like a room in the boat that is just for storing these long strips of blubber. Yeah, and there are people in there coiling it. Um, and and the, that... in, the entire time, this thing is just dripping blood. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, presumably uh, this entire process just yeah. continues swapping off the two tackles until they have totally peeled the whale. Yep, 
And thus the work proceeds, the two tackles hoisting and lowering simultaneously, both whale and windlass heaving, the heavers singing, the blubber room gentlemen coiling, the mates scarfing, which is cutting the, um, the edges of the, uh, blanket, and the ship straining, and all hands swearing occasionally by way of assuaging the general friction. So, I don't think anyone does anything but just focusing intently on making sure that that whale continues to be spiralized. Yeah. Yep, we've also got a good, uh print in this image of like which i think is slightly inaccurate to what's being described but is close enough yeah <sighs> so that is uh that is the cutting, cutting in cutting in yeah yep so now that's the sort of operation that's going on ishmael is presumably uh so queek wielding the boarding sword but ishmael is uh just on the windlass that's yeah. his entire job here unless maybe he's in the blubber room but i don't think ishmael's in the blubber room that seems like a place for like more experienced whalers that seems possible if you, imagine if you got this shit tangled yeah no you're right tugging on the windlass is probably the most unskilled job involved here and that is probably where ishmael is <laughs> our boy the most unskilled whaler yeah uh, uh so uh chapter 68 the blanket is yeah. about the strip of blubber and more generally the skin of the whale that not unvexed subject as ishmael puts it yeah so uh ishmael has an argument here about what technically speaking is considered the skin of the whale mm -hmm. um because uh there is some sort of like extremely thin substance on the out outer surface of a whale um just outside the blubber yes which i I honestly do not know much about this. I tried to look up, like, information on, like, whale skin, skin anatomy, but I, I couldn't really find easy descriptions of it. Um, but, you know, I, I I certainly believe that this substance exists. I can't imagine that Ishmael just made it all up or Melville just made it all up. Yeah, yeah. And he's the, the argument that he's making here is that the blubber, which is, like, 10 to 15 inches uh, thick or something shouldn't be considered the skin of the whale because no, it's like no no he's making the opposite oh, no, no. argument ben. right 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 he, sorry he's I... basically saying you might think that it's ridiculous to say that the blubber right is i the just skin. agree with that <laughs> well sorry. yes uh but but his point is okay if the blubber is not the skin then what is is it the super thin transparent stuff that you find on the skin of the whale um like yes it does cover the entire body of the whale but because it's so so thin and delicate and translucent uh it can't possibly be the actual skin of a creature that's so huge it's just the the skin of the skin yeah uh, it's, and y y I, I guess i can't i should not try and take a strong opinion on whale anatomy i've never touched a whale so i will say i, I according to modern scientific understandings blubber is considered subcutaneous mm -hmm. tissue so that is to say it is below the skin yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what exact layer of whale anatomy exists that is we, cutaneous that we that we currently consider to be skin that Ishmael was just not yep. aware of or didn't yep. recognize as a separate thing or was just Matt or was this thing that he's talking about and he's just disagrees with modern science as usual. Yeah. Um, yeah. He does note something very um, fun, which is, uh, he, if once you take this like very thin sheet of something, this uh, this very thin sheet of something off, uh, apparently it will dry and contract a bit into a hard, clear substance, which he uses as bookmarks in his whale books. Yes. And also, um, 
It is transparent, as I said before, and being laid upon the printed page, I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence. At any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. Which yeah. is, like, very much has the same energy <laughs> as eating whale steak by whale light. Yeah, yeah. Like, he would just surround himself by with all whale products if he could, and on the Pequod, you could. Yeah. Because yeah, the ship is made, in large part, of whaleboat. <sighs> Uh, and uh he also regales us with some some math about the like weight of the blubber because uh apparently when you when you remove the whale oil from it uh you get 10 tons uh representing only three quarters of the actual total weight of the of the blubber because it gets boiled down to three quarters yeah exactly so he is basically saying all right this creature has skin of which three quarters of it weighs 10 tons uh so yeah, don't you so... think whales are big <laughs> yeah whales very large um and then he gets into talking about the um the unknowable strangeness and interesting qualities of the whale yet yes. again uh so he he also describes how um the like surface of sperm whales seems to be kind of crosshatched um just a bunch of marks Yep. Um, and, uh... And, which seemed to be, um, engraved in the blubber itself. Yes. Uh, and... And, uh, the... These, these crosshatch marks also, in some instances to the quick observant eye, those linear marks, as in a veritable engraving, but afford the ground for far other delineations. So I think what he's saying is that if you are paying attention, you can see, like shapes in these crosshatches yeah no I, I think he's arguing that you know there is a mystic language here he literally compares it to the hieroglyphs yeah of, uh, the hieroglyphics of uh, pyramids um and that uh sometimes it reminded him of uh hieroglyphic characters seen on uh, native american structures and uh various other places and they are, um, you know, the mystic marked whale remains undecipherable. Yeah, he's actually, he's referring, when he, so, by my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate. So he's saying it's basically like a, like a printed engraving. Representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the upper Mississippi. And that's a, that's referring to a specific mm -hmm. mural um, uh, called the Piasaw. Um, which is, you know, on bluffs above the Mississippi River. Yep. Um, which is, uh, apparently it no longer exists in its original form. And actually might, that might have been true even in the 19th century mm. when uh, Ishmael was writing. Um, it's, it, this is like an ancient, uh, you know, image, um, which had been in various ways, like, uh, defaced, defaced or like partially destroyed over time and there is like a modern repainted uh reconstruction of it that currently exists mm -hmm. um cool yeah um, <sighs> but uh it is one of those you know examples of like um you know ancient or, or like old <laughs> you know pre-columbian um like land art yeah uh, that that uh you know is not really fully understood 
Yeah, no, he's definitely making, and the hieroglyphics as well, which were just being deciphered um, in this period, he's framing it all in terms of mystery and uncertainty. Like, there's a message in a whale, but we don't know how to read it. He also compares it, interestingly, to um, uh, to the uh, marks of icebergs and glaciers passing, uh, because specifically he references uh, Louis Agassiz, um, a uh, major naturalist, and huge racist of the uh, 19th century who proposed the concept of the Ice Age. Yeah, so he's suggesting, he says that in addition to these, like, cross hatches and and the hieroglyphics contained within them, you also see uh, scratches on the back of sperm whales, which he believes are the result of, uh, like, fights with other whales. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for that reason, he compares them to the idea of, like, rocks that have been marked by... The passage of glaciers yeah um, it's interesting because he's definitely bringing in this concept of scientific like knowability or interpretability or unknowability um and it's interesting that there's this sort of combination of on the one hand like mystic markings that shall never be understood that are deeper than mankind can understand and also uh scientific markings physical markings that are rough and visible and that you can interpret and attempt to understand things not seen so there's a weird amount of epistemology in the patterns on the blanket yes yeah uh and then he also talks about uh the the uh, idea that you know the 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 pieces of blubber that are stripped from the whale are called blanket pieces and he's like you know that makes a lot of sense because basically the blubber is what insulates the whale from the cold of Arctic waters. So it really is like a blanket. Yep. yep. Um, His cozy surtout. Yeah. Um, And Uh, uh, this is, you know, necessary because unlike other fish, (laughs) whales are warm blooded. So, you know, if they were to swim in the Arctic without some kind of intense insulation, they would die as, as sailors yep. do when they yep. fall overboard in the arctic yep he gives examples of sailors who fall overboard in the arctic and are later found frozen in the ice yes um also i like that he describes them as those hyperborean waters just because I, I like hyperborea i think it's cool yeah as a term yeah uh, and of course this leads him to a a little moral point uh yeah because like a medieval bestiarist uh, Ishmael is really fond of making specifically whale-centric moral al- allegories and analogies. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality, and the rare virtue of thick walls, and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O oh man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou too remain warm among ice. Do thou too live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's, and like the great whale, retain, O man, in all seasons the temperature of thine own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things. Of erections, how few are domed like St. Peter's. Of creatures, how few vast is the whale. Yeah, it's pretty good. (laughs) But also... Yeah, we are we are juvenile and we are laughing yeah. at the idea of dome directions. Um, yeah. Anyways, um, but no, it's 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 very fun that he's like, yes, you must you know keep this stoic center to yourself, but you know you're not really big, so you can't probably. Like yeah. he's, I love the like. I'm sure this is like spiritually big is meant for humans, but I love the idea that just like a really big person is more capable of keeping themselves aloof and unchanged because it's just harder to get at them. Yes. Um, 
Incidentally, he's re- he is uh, referring to like an idea that I don't know how true this is, but supposedly uh, St. Peter's Basilica does maintain a constant temperature. Um, which, yep. you know, I mean, it would make sense for like a giant building. stone building. Yep. Uh, that In is... a relatively temperate part of the world. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that brings us to chapter 69, the funeral. Yes. Uh... Which is um, just what happens when you cut the whale loose, having uh, stripped it of its uh, skin, and as we will briefly learn, its head. Yes, um, and and uh, it uh, it 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 still it is still enormous. Um, it yes. barely seems to have diminished in size, having had the blubber removed. Uh, but it is now white in color. Um, yep, and uh, the sharks are still going at it and going to go at it for a while, and so are the birds. Yes, um, and so as the as the ship sails away from it, um, th- there's just this uh, giant you know, uh, confusion of, of feeding animals just mm-hmm. passing off astern of the yep. ship. For hours and hours from the almost stationary ship, that hideous sight is seen. Beneath the unclouded and mild azure sky, upon the fair face of the pleasant sea, wafted by the joyous breezes, the great mass of death floats on and on, till lost in infinite perspectives. Yeah, um, and uh, he, like, mockingly describes this grisly scene as a funeral. Yeah, or I think he specifically thinks the funeral is mocking. Like, he's describing it as a, as a funeral that is deeply hypocritical because all the sharks and vultures who did not care for the whale in life now feast upon its funeral meats in death. Yes. Uh, and oh, furthermore... Oh, horrible vulturism of Earth. Yes. Furthermore, uh, there is this weird phenomenon where, uh, you know, um, because the... Because the whale is now this sort of, like, strange mass in the water. With with its head removed, so it's no longer even shaped really like a whale. It's just a big white mass. Yes. Uh, whenever a, presumably specifically a non-whaling vessel yeah. comes upon it, uh, they would take it for, you know, a rock or some kind of disturbance in the water. Yeah, yeah. and if you, if you see a rock just sticking up out of the Atlantic, you don't want to get near it because there's surely other rocks nearby. Exactly. Shoals, so they, they write down in... Uh, with trembling fingers is set down in the log shoals rocks and breakers hereabouts beware and for years afterwards perhaps ships shun the place so this this uh false idea that the whale is a rock becomes you know in in the way that he's talked about kind of the way that um ships communicate with each other so presumably yeah, yeah. this this particular marking of a dangerous spot would be not just charted yeah not just kept by this ship but communicated to others and you know, for years afterwards, many ships would avoid this spot where years ago there was a dead whale, which is now yeah. totally gone. Um, uh, and while thus, while in life the great whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to the world. Yeah, uh, and this is, you know, a metaphor for Ishmael, for, you know, the idea of, uh, of orthodoxy. Of, yep, yep. of people retaining, like, old beliefs that no longer reflect reality. Uh, never bottomed on the earth, and now not even hovering in the air, as he puts it. Ishmael is very quick to judge as someone who believes many, many things. <laughs> I mean, you know, give Ishmael this credit. A lot of his beliefs uh, may be outlandish, but I don't think some of... I don't think his weirdest beliefs can really be credited as, like... Uh, 
you know, retained tradition. from ages, from age-old tradition. Like, most of his wild shit is stuff that he made up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He's doing the work. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I also, um, I really like the ending here as well, which is, Are you a believer in ghosts, my friend? There are other ghosts than the Cock Lane one, and far deeper men than Dr. Johnson who believe in them. So he's like, he's making the argument that whales have ghosts in a very certain sense, but apparently humans don't. Yeah, he is also uh, referring to, by the way, a specific ghost. Oh. Uh, yeah, so the Cock Lane ghost was a, a ghost that became famous in 18th century London, and uh, Samuel Johnson, um, who I think, he's the the dictionaryist, right? Or I, I think so. Anyway, um was part of a group that investigated that ghost and exposed it as a fraud. Ah, that makes sense. That's a that is a useful context for that. Thank you. Thanks, powermobydick.com. You know, I didn't actually look at the Wikipedia page for the Cocklane ghost, so I do want to look at it real quick and just see if there's any like mm-hmm. exciting wild tidbits about yeah. exactly how this ghost manifested itself. But I do want to get to the uh the last chapter chap- that we're reading today, chapter 70, The Sphinx, because it is Say it with me. One of my favorite chapters. (laughs) Look, there's a lot of chapters. There's like 150 of the things. Of course there's going to be a bunch of my favorite chapters. This does seem to have been a very famous ghost. Uh, Charles Uh. Dickens and William Hogarth both referenced it. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think the, um, the fact that the ghost was actively accusing someone of her murder is probably, uh probably an important part of the uh the ghost thing which was mentioned up there yeah and also this is oh this is right when seances were becoming like a thing yeah um anyway uh yeah but i think, I think that's uh that's basically all the real information i want to communicate about the cock lane ghost at this point but yeah fair enough i did briefly see an image of dr samuel johnson i just love how he always looks deeply perturbed <laughs> but anyways that brings us to chapter 70 the sphinx yes so this starts with Ishmael admitting that he's bad at telling stories. <laughs> yes. It should not have been omitted. <laughs> like, Who did that? Hmm? Ishmael, hmm? you can go back and edit. Do you know that? I don't think he does. <laughs> it should not have been omitted that previous to completely stripping the body of the Leviathan, he was beheaded. Um, I just... Look, we've had arguments about how good of a storyteller Ishmael is, but I feel like this is strong evidence in my favor. Yeah, no, this is a smoking gun. He's literally (laughs) saying, uh, I should have told you this earlier. And it's like, you could have. You literally could go and change your manuscript. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, we could imagine that Ishmael is like telling this story in a in a tavern or something however that does mean that he stopped telling a story out an oral story in order to go back and say okay so this is how i would have told it this other time and here's what they would have said then and i'm just going to sort of do that so it's it's better for my image of ishmael to imagine him writing it but i yeah i agree that ishmael has no concept of editing or pacing or um like he doesn't have a lot of concepts. He's got too many concepts, and some just got lost. And, you know, again, I've, we, we've said this before, I just want to underline, we are not saying that Melville did not edit his manuscript No, I think all. I think this order of things and the way this is done is very effective. I think that the um, the fact that the, uh, the funeral starts with the beheaded body, but you don't actually know about the beheading, helps lead into the Sphinx very effectively. I think that this is effectively written... I just think that on the level of Ishmael's storytelling, it's intentionally poorly organized. Yes. 
So, uh, he's, first, he's at pains to impress upon us that beheading the whale is actually, like, a, a serious feat. Yes, a scientific anatomical feat, upon which experienced whale surgeons very much pride themselves, and not without reason. Yeah, because, first of all, uh, whales really don't have necks. Like, the place where the head meets the body is actually the thickest part of the whale. Yep, yep. Um, and whales just sort of slope into their... They don't really have shoulders, do they? Not really. I mean, yep. they, they've got, like... A lot of the limbs. bones. They've got yeah. arms in the sense that they have fins. So I guess those probably have, like, they probably have shoulder bones somewhere, somewhere. in there. But... You know, I, I don't know whale anatomy. Anyway, so, all right, the whale's uh, quote-unquote neck is incredibly thick. Uh, also, you have to you have to do it from about eight or ten feet above, you know, leaning over from the ship. Um, while the whale is, like, mostly half sunk under the water. Um, and you have to get you know, deep into the whale and, like, chop it off, chop, you know, at the base of the of the head. Of the or the base of the skull. Because um, it doesn't really have the, a head. Yeah. Sever the spine there. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the, not entirely clear why, but the person who's doing this, he must skillfully steer clear of all adjacent interdicted parts. So I guess this basically means, like, you you're really not supposed to make a... A mess of this. You're yeah, supposed yeah. to do it as cleanly as possible. So I'll bet the problem if you make a mess of it is that you might um, you might spill the uh, spermaceti. Mm, yes, or, that's, that must be it. If you like, it, you want to make this as clean as possible because the skull is basically being treated as like a container full of extremely valuable stuff. Yes, um, and presumably also you want to leave the blubber below the head as like clean and available for cutting yeah. in as possible. Like, it's just, it is most convenient to do this as cleanly as possible. Yes. Like most butchery. Uh, so, apparently Stubb can do this in ten minutes. Yeah, no, um, I do marvel at Stubb's bow, Stishmail, exactly <laughs> like you ask. I, look, here's the thing, I would marvel at almost any bow Stubb makes, because I assume he's a liar. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but, uh, no, I believe he can do it in ten, ten minutes if, uh, if the book says so. So they, uh, they they kind of leave the head to be dealt with until after the cutting in is done. Um, uh, and it's um, it's specifically dropped astern and held there by a cable till the body is stripped. So you behead the whale. Oh, that must make it easier to strip the body because like a third of the weight is in the head. Yeah, that would that would make sense. Yeah, and, and so now the head's just sort of dangling behind the boat on a line. Yeah, and if it's small enough, they just ho hoist the whole head on the ship, but. Uh, in the case of a full-grown sperm whale, you can't do that. It's it's way too huge. Uh, completely to suspend such a burden as that, even by the immense tackles of a whaler, this were as vain a thing as to attempt weighing a Dutch barn in jeweler's scales. Again, yes. the Dutch. Uh, so what they actually did in this case was they hoisted the head about half out of the water. So the water is partially supporting its weight, um, mm -hmm. but they, I guess, still have access to the head, and it's it is, uh, once again, healing the ship over seriously. yeah with that with that much weight out of the water the ship is healing over um like the the tops of the um masts would be like out over the water uh so he describes the um every yard arm on that side projecting like a crane over the waves uh and then he makes a biblical reference yeah uh uh technically an apocryphal reference really i okay I'm having a weird moment because I knew that there's like a lot of 
version. So this is, sorry, this is the story of um, the giant Holofernes head hanging from the girdle of Ju- Judith, the famous Judith beheading Holofernes. And I really thought that was, like, in the accepted books, not the Apocrypha. Yeah, so there are, like, a lot of famous pieces of art yeah. of Judith beheading Holofernes or Holofernes. And... Um, but he shows no. up in a ton of literature. Like, there's an old English uh, Judith. There's a um, like, there's a bunch of English and old like old English like early Christian and early Christianization of England depictions of Judith and Holofernes. Ah, here we go. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, the Book of Judith is deuterocanonical. Oh yeah, I know that term. Uh, which means it is considered by. Uh, the Catholic Church and Orthodox churches to be canonical, but not by Protestants. So PowerMobyDick.com is not entirely wrong to call it apocryphal. It is but apocryphal is a, to Ishmael, but... But is a Protestant, it is a Protestant website. We now know its position. <laughs> I mean, did you really expect PowerMobyDick.com, like, aligned with Moby Dick, aligned with whaling, to be anything other than Protestant? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, look, I... I'm just glad that it's sometimes uh, canonical for that because uh, I'd have felt really silly about my own understanding of stuff that I, like, studied in class. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, this is a lesson to me. I should not always, uh, you know, wholeheartedly trust everything <laughs> that PowerMobyDick.com says yeah. to me without any, you know, research. <laughs> yeah. So this is, you know, a little bit of a, a side thing. It's only a brief aside. It's just he says that, you know, there that blood-dripping head hung to the Pequod's waist like the giant Holoferns from the girdle of Judith. And that's that's all it says about Judith and Holoferns. We've just sort of gone on a little walk around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so once they finish doing that, there's, uh, you know, that that is the last task of uh, dismantling the whale. Um, and at that point, uh, the seamen go have lunch, or as it's put in this book dinner, dinner yeah <laughs> uh, and i love this this sentence silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck an intense copper calm like a universal yellow lotus was more and more unfolding its noiseless measures m- noiseless measureless leaves upon the sea that's just beautiful yep. that is just a beautiful image and it's such an amazing like turn from the discussion of the mechanics of the beheading the like even the biblical allegory is really like you know straightforwardly physically descriptive it's all very like here is what we're doing here's what the body is like here's you know uh historical anecdotes about it and then this happens and everything is calm and weird and kind of mystical and that's when ahab re-emerges onto the deck yes uh so ahab uh, comes up and uh, walks around a little bit and, and takes up Stubbs' whale spade, whaling spade, um, and stabs it into the whale head. Uh, In order to use it as a crutch to lean on as he leans out over the side. Yes. And uh, this is where we get the title of the chapter. Um, it was a black and hooded head, and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the sphinxes in the desert. And then Ahab just gives a speech to the head, and it's amazing. Yeah, do you want to just read this? I do want to just read this. Thank you. I really appreciate that, because I was going to offer it to you, because I was like, <laughs> it's only fair to offer, but... Speak, thou vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which, though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. 
Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amid this world's foundations, where unrecorded names and navies rust, and untold hopes and anchors rot, where in her murderous hold this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned. There in that awful waterland, there was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell or diver never went, hast slept by many a sailor's side, where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou saw'st the locked lovers when leaping from their flaming ship, heart to heart they sank beneath the exulting wave, true to each other when heaven seemed false to them. Thou saw'st the murdered mate when tossed by pirates from the midnight deck, for hours he fell into the deeper midnight of the insatiate maw, and his murderers still sailed on unharmed, while swift lightnings shivered the neighboring shift, ship that would have borne a righteous husband to outstretched, longing arms. O oh, head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. Yeah! It's so good! It's, it's so, so good! good. It rules. Oh my god, it's so good. And then immediately after that, someone goes, Sail ho! You know, they see another ship. And Ahab just steps up and says, Ah, well, now that's cheering. Yeah. <laughs> and just immediately goes back to, uh, he says, Specifically, that lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. Yeah. Like, oh god, I love this so much thematically. Um, or, three points on the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down her breeze to us. Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way, and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. O nature and O soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies. Not the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Yeah. It's so good. It's So what I love about this is that this is the maybe the start, or possibly uh, the continuation of Ahab's sort of like almost satirical tone about like you know oh there are good things in the world that might were i not completely and utterly monomaniacally focused on the death of moby dick convince me that life is worth living and that there are better things in it than vengeance but i'm not yeah you know where's your you know if god really wanted to turn me from this quest if the world really wanted to prove that things were good where's its evangelist yeah. And the implied burn on Starbuck that the book is making here is oh. Brobdignagian. It is immense. It is just absolutely, without comparison, dunking on Starbuck here. But, yeah. like, low-key. The And I love also, like, you know, make an infidel of Abraham. The, like, the injustices he piles up in the sea. The concept of this depth that is the true nature of the world and how the whale is privy to all of this and has lived it and knows it, but it is incapable of communicating this to us. Ahab is fully, like, absorbed in this idea of unknowability and this, like, this hidden knowledge, this gnosis of, of the true nature of the world, which cannot be communicated, but that he has, like become aware of and i will say i do think that there's some genuine hope for ahab in hearing sail ho yeah. however i think it's specifically like okay the secret knowledge that he's asking for from the whale's head and that he knows he won't receive from it obviously you're right on some level it's gnosis it is like uh an, an incredibly mysterious and broad knowledge of the nature of the world but yeah, i think yeah. in specific 
It is also knowledge of the location of Moby Dick. Yeah. And he won't get that from this whale's head, but he could get it from the mm, ship. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. And I think the, the ways in which Ahab's hope and, like, cheer and his vengeance are so intricately linked is very... It's fun. It's good. It's all good. And I just... I also love his, like, his examples of the injustice of the sea and the, the fundamental, like, uncaring nature of it, which, you know, as we've had in previous, in the last episode, we mentioned Noah's flood has not yet receded. It covers two-thirds of the earth. Yeah. The, um, the, the ocean is in some sense truer or more real or deeper and more, like, deepness and, like, reality and fundamental qualities and, like, uh, depth and truth have been really closely aligned yeah, in this book. The ocean is this world's foundations. Yes. And the, um, and this, like, and the whale, which has true knowledge of that, would under, would be able to, would, if it could speak, tell us of how, you know, unfair and cruel the world truly is. You know, he talks of rusted navies and, uh, untold hopes and anchors rot, um, in her murderous hold, this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned. It's just everything about the world can be understood through the fact that the ocean is this giant open grave. Yeah, and I think there's also even an implication with that specific metaphor. Because, you know, a, an actual frigate mm -hmm. would be ballasted in the sense that it has, like, weight in the yes, bottom of its Yes, and that hold, maintains right? its balance and allows it to sail. Yeah, so I think he is in some ways almost suggesting that, like... Life on land, life on the earth, mm. requires death at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, I mean, the, the true nature of it is still there, and all of life is founded on it, but it's not visible. It's hidden by this immense mass of water and this mystery. Whereas if you fully understand the world, you would, like Ahab, go mad and seek to kill God, or at least the whale. Yeah. You would strike through the mask. Uh, and, you know, try to punch through the wall of this prison where it comes nearest. Yeah. <sighs> also, okay, not the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Yes! That's just super cool. Like, his... Like, on some level, what Ahab is saying is, you know, the depths of the ocean are unknowable, but I can only imagine them as unknowable or think about them through the power of my mind. To be able to conceive of the unknowability of the ocean is in some sense to uh, be, you know, um, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies. Like, you can think the unutterable. You can have thoughts that are as deep as the oceans. You can, in fact, open your mind to gnosis because there is not one atom of material world that has not its cunning duplicate in mind. Yeah, yeah. Ah, O nature and O soul of man. Yeah, I think also part of what Ahab is suggesting here, by saying that, like, nature and the soul of man have, like, a total, you know, correspondence. Yeah. I think he's also maybe suggesting that, on the one hand, there is the sort of terrifying apparition of the severed head of a whale that has been to the depths of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, Ahab's, like, melancholy and his... Uh, contemplation of the unknowable mm. but then on the other hand you also have a ship appearing and that is like a physical event but that also represents mm. like no i think you're right and uh ahab understands the world symbolically and allegorically he understands that he understands the deeper meanings of things around him in a way that i think ishmael wants to yeah yeah 
Yeah, I also do love his, I think also there's, you know, this, would would now St. Paul would come along that way and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. He's also talking about literally this boat that's sailing in is bringing a breeze through the calm. They're visibly, their sails are filled and they're moving towards you and they don't seem to be slackening. That means there's a wind coming, the, the boat will be able to pick up, the Pequod will be able to travel onward. So, and that breeze is analogous to hope, to belief in, you know, salvation or a better world. So there is, again, this uh, this direct analogy where, all, where the physical thing uh, has the thing it inspires or makes you think of in mind. It's cunning duplicate. Yeah, it's interesting. I think something that's present in these, uh, in this speech is almost an idea that Ahab wishes he could give up his monomania. Yeah, I mean, I think like, he's it, asking for a better evangelist. For He's asking for, like, a... He's asking for a miracle, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think he's very conscious that that's not going to happen, that St. Paul is not on the yeah. Jeroboam. It's, like, there's something... Like, you know, as he gets up, he says, you know, this deadly... this That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man and convert in this case clearly means to reform him to make him move away from his uh you know his madness maddened and to instead uh embrace some better better possibilities life you know starbucks take on the world but i think that the i think there's a deep sarcasm to that idea of a better man because on some level i think he's i think that ahab does genuinely believe that a better man is one who doesn't think so deeply about these things that you might that a um, you know what is it one of the uh, the um, the faithful rather than the pneumatic in the Gnostic terms might be a better person might be more beloved of the way the world actually works, but Ahab cannot see uh, cannot be a better man because that's a question of not of he knows too much in a sense at least yeah. that's how I read it yeah I think that's true. Um... But yeah, the um, there's another ship. There's presumably a gam to be had. Uh, possibly, I don't remember. Uh, in uh, chapter seventy-one, which we won't get to today, of the Jeroboam story. Yeah, I have to the I Jeroboam. Have, I have to assume they had a gam because they exchanged a story with her. Like I think yeah. that much is implied from the title. Oh no, I don't think they have a gam. Uh, because, um, just looking a little bit down, it turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board, and that oh. Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Pequod's company. So I think they actually have to talk back and forth by, like, loudspeaker. Ah, okay. Well, all Yeah, right. that, that's why I was like, I think they have a gam, but I knew one of these boats had a lot of weird stuff going on that made a gam impossible. Okay. Uh, possibly multiple. It's, it's been a little while, and I don't remember every specific boat that Ahab yells at over the course <laughs> of this book. But anyways, uh, God, I I love the Sphinx. It's it's yet more of my favorite kind of content, which is Ahab being intense and Gnostic. Um, it's going to keep happening throughout the books, though I will keep saying, oh my God, this is my favorite chapter over and over <laughs> and over. Um but, you know, maybe at the end of the book, I'll need to do, like, a ranking of short, weird chapters and how much I love them. Yeah, it would be fun to do, like, a like a, a, a chapter ranking at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, once we've read all the chapters. Uh-huh. Um, there's still about 80 to go. <laughs> oh, no, 135. So there's still about 60 to go. My bad. Okay. <laughs> well, I think that about covers it for today. Yeah, I we have dismantled a whale. We have communed with its weird head. We have uh, we have found the uh, cunning duplicate in mind of all these letters on the page. <laughs>
So, uh, what tune is it you pulled to, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 